Hey everyone, Justin here from Eerie Earfuls. We're bringing this old podcast back, and to prepare for the big return, we're re-releasing our old episodes every two weeks until we catch up. These were originally recorded in 2018, so the references are going to be a little out of date. Also, the earlier episodes have some occasional sound or editing issues as we figured out our process, which I've tried to fix or mitigate if possible. Personally, I still think they sound pretty good, but we definitely got better as we went along. I hope you enjoy these older episodes and expect us to start dropping new ones sometime in July or August. Stay scared, everyone. Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls, as seen with Goody Proctor and the Devil. Every two weeks we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. So let's just dive right into our double feature for this week. The person that picks the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week's pick was mine, and I chose Silver Bullet and Late Phases. Let's pop in the synopsis tape. Silver Bullet is a 1985 film directed by Daniel Atias and written by Stephen King, based on his own illustrated novella, Cycle of the Werewolf. In the spring of 1976, a series of grisly murders rocks the northeastern town of Tarker's Mills, Maine. The town is pressuring Sheriff Joe Holler to find this madman and bring him to justice, but he's handcuffed by a lack of evidence of foul play. Everything points to animal attacks. In the middle of this is Marty and his older sister Jane. They have a fraught relationship because Jane feels like her parents are too lenient with Marty because he's paraplegic, and they ask too much of her by expecting her to assist him as often as they do. After the murders become more frequent and one of his school friends is killed, Marty discovers the true culprit is no normal man at all, but a werewolf. He manages to wound the creature by shooting a firework into its eye. Marty and Jane then begin working together to root out who in the town is secretly a wolf among sheep. Jane discovers it's the local Baptist Reverend Lowe. They send him anonymous letters to try and drive him out of town, but he quickly figures out who is sending them and attempts to run Marty off the road. Marty convinces his Uncle Red the truth about the Reverend, and they devise a plan to lure the werewolf into a confrontation and finish him off with a silver bullet. The night of the full moon arrives, the werewolf attacks, and Marty manages to save his uncle by shooting the werewolf through the other eye. The werewolf transforms back into his human form, and the film ends with Marty and Jane embracing in the aftermath, and admitting they do love each other after all. Late Phases is a 2014 horror drama directed by Adrian Garcia Bagliano, his first English-language film, and written by Eric Stoltz. Will moves his father Ambrose, a fiercely independent blind Vietnam vet, and his seeing-eye dog Shadow into a retirement community at the edge of a forest. Adamant that he can live on his own, he and Will are not on the best of terms. That night, during a full moon, a werewolf breaks in and disembowels his neighbor before breaking through the wall and coming for Ambrose as well. Shadow attacks the creature and fends it off while Ambrose struggles to find his gun. Shadow is mortally wounded in the struggle, and Ambrose puts him down, waiting for help to arrive. He learns that these attacks, ruled animal attacks by the local police, happen monthly. He determines it must be a werewolf and begins planning his defenses for the next full moon. He buys a gigantic marble tombstone and sets about digging a deep grave, claiming it's for his dog. Meanwhile, he begins meeting the community to determine who could be the potential werewolf. He narrows his suspects down to Father Roger Smith, the local priest, or James Griffin, a friend of Father Smith's and volunteer at the church. While Ambrose convinces a gunsmith to forge some silver bullets, James begins biting residents, cursing them as werewolves. Father Smith catches him in a ritual mortification of the flesh, and James confesses that he's a werewolf. Smith doesn't believe him until he transforms and murders him. At home, Ambrose puts on his military dress uniform and calls his son, leaving him a voicemail to say his final goodbyes. He dispatches several werewolves with his traps and silver bullets, crushing one under the massive tombstone. However, he's mortally wounded by James in their fight. Will arrives having heard his father's message, sees the half-transformed werewolves, and rushes to his father's aid. Ambrose has already passed away, calmly sitting on his back porch, having overdosed on medication to save himself from the werewolf curse. The film ends with Will and his wife at his father's funeral. He retrieves his father's rifle after receiving the tri-corner flag, takes aim at the rising moon, and fires. I chose these two movies specifically because, one, they're both werewolf movies, and both of the main characters feature disabilities. And so I I thought that there were a lot of surprising commonalities between the two movies, to the point where it almost feels like Late Phases is kind of a sequel to Silver Bullet. 
I want to talk about disability. I want to preface this by saying that I am not disabled. I'm not exactly a disability scholar. I'm going to try to use the best, most respectful terms possible, but if I, if I mess up, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to. But I wanted to talk about this because both of these movies feature characters dealing with disabilities, but the way the movies tackle these disabilities is very different. Able-bodied people often view disability as a curse. It's something that right. gets inflicted on someone, usually by some sort of tragedy, uh, like a physical accident or a medical issue, something like that. Mm-hmm. Often people that have physical uh, differences are used as a portrayal for villains. So the Candyman has a hook hand. Javier Bardem's character in Skyfall has this removable jaw. Freddy Krueger has burns that have disfigured him and, and, and made him look scary. And then Reverend Lowe in Silver Bullet gets a bottle rocket to the eye. It's after he receives that injury that he suddenly becomes less sympathetic and more sinister. Yeah. Narratives that involve disabled people often involve overcoming that disability or overcoming people's attitudes about that disability. Mm -hmm. It's usually very heavy-handed. There's lots of conversations about what being disabled means. It's a lot of able-bodied people treating the disabled person with, with disgust or with pity. Silver Bullet is a narrative very much like that, where the focus for Marty's story is on him and his disability. The narrative focuses on the fact that he is in a wheelchair. I misremembered this movie watching it growing up. I thought Silver Bullet was the what he named his second wheelchair, the rocket-powered wheelchair that he gets from his Uncle Red. But Marty already has a, like, souped-up gas-powered wheelchair at the beginning of the movie. It's like a little go-kart that he can drive around. (laughs) The the implication with Marty's wheelchair, at least to me, is that the first wheelchair he has was also built by Uncle Red. That's sort of what I think why he likes Red so much. Right. There's also an implication. There's a scene in the movie where he's watching children play baseball. The camera keeps specifically focusing on their legs, which tells me that he hasn't... He's been disabled long enough for everyone to have a routine... But it hasn't been so long that he'd forgotten what it was like to use his legs. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. That scene where he was, like, admiring all the kids' legs in Silver Bullet. The first time I watched it, I thought he was looking at butts. And I was like, (laughs) hey, you know, you're gonna be a teenager. I don't blame you. Butts are cool, man. And then I realized it was legs, and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess he doesn't have good use of his legs, so whatever. Get your mind out of the gutter, Brandon. (laughs) Going going Bob's Burgers. Turns out his name is Marty Belcher. (laughs) So that tells me that Red must have built the first wheelchair and then built him this new wheelchair, even more souped up. In a way, that feels like Red compensating in a different way than Mm -hmm. everyone else. Everyone else coddles Marty. They're afraid to even get on to him if they feel like he's out of line. Jane argues with Marty because she feels Marty isn't being held accountable, and he's kind of not. His parents are sort of letting him get away with stuff sometimes, and they're not even really wanting to raise their voice at him, but they will scream at Jane if she says anything. Red pushes back against that with Marty's parents. He feels that they're coddling him. The only person that doesn't seem to remark upon or react to Marty's disability at all is, weirdly, the Reverend. He never seems to make any mention of it. He's just, Marty knows his secret, so he has to die. (laughs) It's about how everyone else feels about this disability, but it's not about how Marty feels. Besides that one brief scene where we see him sort of reminiscing and watching kids play baseball, there's almost no anything internal from him about how he feels about the situation. Anytime that Janie brings up that he's disabled, anytime his parents bring up that he's disabled, he never actually reacts. He never says anything. It's almost like he doesn't hear them or or he's ignoring them. So, conversely, Late Phases doesn't really focus on Ambrose's disability specifically. It is a part of him. It does affect how he does things. But everyone doesn't constantly comment on the fact that he is disabled. There are questions, like his dog dies early in the movie, and rather than getting a cane, he spends the rest of the movie using a shovel as a sort of replacement for a cane, and someone says, why are you using a shovel and not, you know, a cane? And oddly enough, his response is, canes are for cripples. So there's a sort of ableist mindset even to himself. I I wonder if maybe that's part of why he is so self-dependent. Right. There is a moment where he's talking to the priest, and he mentions that when he came back from Vietnam, he had eye trauma, but he refused to go to the doctor because he refused to admit it was a problem until suddenly he was blind and there was no way to recover his sight. So it's almost like the worse his disability got, the more determined he was that he could make it on his own and and refuse to admit that there was anything going on. And it's almost like that continued because now he wants to live by himself. He doesn't want to have anyone else around. After his dog dies, he doesn't get another dog. He doesn't even get a cane. He just uses a shovel. Mm -hmm. Marty immediately tries to rope in his sister and his uncle to get help. 
Ambrose does not. He is all about figuring this out on his own, and then he lays like Home Alone-esque traps to kill off the werewolves. But in much the way that Marty deals with people being condescending or being overly delicate with him, Ambrose deals with the same thing. Marty deals with it by sort of not acknowledging it, by just sort of pretending it's not happening. Ambrose is clearly an older man, and so he, whenever his neighbors come in and they're very condescending and very like, oh, well, isn't that nice? Then he immediately is just like, he doesn't put up with their shit at all. He's like, yeah, no, I'm good. Get out. (laughs) And (laughs) kicks them out. In a similar vein, a lot of the people in late phases have disabilities because it's a retirement community that he lives in, and so everyone's older, and so they're dealing with the effects of age. So one of his neighbors, her husband is in an iron lung. His neighbor Dolores has a walker, and she clearly has mobility issues of her own. Yeah. I think he prides himself on his physicality and on his fitness. He goes over to a neighbor's house at one point because he remembers that the werewolf wheezes, and he hears a sound that he thinks is the wheeze, but it turns out to be the husband in the iron lung. And when she says he's in an iron lung, he says, poor bastard so there's this sort of almost pride like he is independent he has control over this and he refuses to give up any of that control on the one hand when ambrose chooses the shovel over the cane or a new dog it is kind of out of spite you know like uh my disability is not going to define me you know i'll just use whatever but it's also a weapon because now that he has no dog my cane's not really effective weapon and if he gets caught off guard by one of these werewolves or whatever he suspects then he has nothing unless he has that shovel around which he does weaponize at the end of the movie and it's a similar thing with marty that wheelchair it's motorized and it's supposed to help him feel more confident but without it he wouldn't have been able to escape a couple of those werewolf attacks if he didn't have that souped up wheelchair So on the one hand, it does make them feel better, but they're also kind of weaponized too. That's true. Which is interesting. Yeah, there's a there's that there's like a training montage where Ambrose is like practicing certain attacks with the shovel. And I didn't think about that until you started talking about that, and I realized that on one hand, you know, it is kind of like, well, I'm not gonna let my disability define me, but on the other hand, it also is very smart to always have a weapon at all times, especially around people that are so squeamish around guns, which they establish at the beginning of the movie also when he's moving in. I mean, understandably, because he can't see what he's aiming right. at. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he's really good with smells and with hearing. See, I liked that about his portrayal with uh, with that disability. I like that there are situations where his lack of sight causes him to like swing and miss at someone. He doesn't land every blow. He's not daredevil. He's not like performing ridiculous, complex martial arts. I like that he listens carefully and so he like recognizes perfume but it's not necessarily like superpowers he's just using the senses that are available to him which is nice because frequently blind people are portrayed as like like ninjas (laughs) (laughs) i wanted to do some research on the history of werewolf depictions in hollywood just to kind of contextualize the two films to try to figure out where they fit within the canon and also what sources they're drawing from And the very first depiction of a werewolf in movies that I could find is from a silent film in 1913 called The Werewolf, which, funnily enough, was made by Universal. They seem to have a monopoly on a lot of the werewolf tropes. All copies of this film were destroyed in a fire at Universal Studios in 1924. But the film itself is very weird. It's based on a short story called The Werewolves from 1898, and it is about a Navajo woman named Kiani. She becomes a witch, because, you know, that's what you do, um, after believing that her husband has abandoned her, even though her husband was technically killed by someone, because she was married to a white man named Ezra. The plot, just fair warning, is very funky and doesn't make a lot of sense. So anyway, she raises her daughter, Watuma, to be a witch, but also to hate all white men. So then once her daughter grows up, she's sent into this town where all these prospectors, these white prospectors, have set up a camp to do some mining and stuff. And she's kind of sent to exact revenge on the white people. And during her time down there, this guy named Clifford becomes enamored with her and sees her with a fellow Native American and gets really crazy and shoots this. The uh, Native American guy, and then that makes Watuma go crazy. So she, like, I guess transforms. It's not super clear. She transforms into a werewolf and then is gonna start attacking the prospectors. And then fast forward 100 years later, Clifford has now been reincarnated into a man named Jack, and Watuma is still around in wolf form. 
She finds Jack and proceeds to kill Jack's lover, thus completing the cycle of revenge. And that's it. There's no mention of plants or moons or seasons. It's nothing like that. It's just these Native American women have supernatural powers that they kind of pass on to each other and they can transform at will, which kind of like takes from the myths of skinwalkers. And then after that, there's a film, not sure who it's distributed by, but you can actually watch it. It's the oldest surviving werewolf film from 1925 called Wolf Blood. It's also a silent film, and it's about feuding logging companies. The prospector of one, named Dick Bannister, he's attacked by one of the rival loggers. He loses a lot of blood during the battle. And no one volunteers to do a transfusion to help him. So their solution is to kill a wolf and transfuse the blood from it into Dick to save his life. Because that's what you do. And so after that, Dick starts having a lot of dreams about becoming a werewolf and attacking rival lumberjacks, I guess, while rival lumberjacks start dying in the rival camp. And that's kind of it. They don't show the transformation. It's not based on moons or plants or anything like that. But it is the first depiction of it coming from wolves. Because he was exposed to wolf blood, he became a man-wolf or werewolf. And then it's not until 10 years later that we get another big shot at displaying werewolves on screen. And it's 1935, Werewolf of London, which is Universal's second shot at trying to put a werewolf on screen. This one introduces a lot of the tropes that we talk about today. It's about a botanist, and he goes to Tibet to try and find this plant that's called Marifasia or something. And it's a plant that only blooms in the moonlight. It's also called the wolf flower or something. So he's going to get it. He does succeed in getting it, but while he's there, he does get attacked by a wolf or some kind of creature. And then when he returns to London to kind of incubate the plants to grow more of it, that's when he starts noticing his wolf-like attributes. Especially they become agitated in the moonlight because he has this thing called a moon lamp to try and get the flowers to grow. The light from the moon lamp is shining on his hand and his hand starts to transform into like a werewolf hand. The Moraphasia plant, if that's how it's pronounced, is actually a plant that reduces the symptoms of being a werewolf. But there's also no mention of silver or anything like that. As a matter of fact, at the end of the movie, while he's in wolf form, he gets shot by a normal gun and dies. But they do introduce the concept of changing being affected by moonlight, although not full moons. And they also introduce this idea of plants being able to help with the symptoms. Very interesting. Oh, uh, also interesting. So the guy that did the makeup for Werewolf of London was Jack Pierce, and the makeup he created was deemed by the actor who plays the main character, Henry Hall, to be too much. And for a long time it was talked about because he thought it was too much because he was very vain and wanted to see himself, and he didn't want to sit in the makeup chair for very long, but in actuality, in the script, when he is a werewolf at some point in the movie, he has to be recognized by a townsperson or someone he knows. And And he argued with Jack Pierce that no one's going to be able to recognize me if I've got all this shit all over my face. And it's a fight that went all the way up to Carl Lemley, who was like the producer of Universal Studios. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, he's probably right. So they use a much more subdued makeup in Werewolf of London that I think is actually kind of creepier. Oh, also, uh, the wolf's howl in Werewolf of London is a combination of the actor Henry Hall howling and a timber wolf howling. Hmm. And as far as I know, that is the only instance in a movie of an actor and an animal's sound being combined for the sound of a werewolf. Like, usually it's other other animal sounds being combined, so this is supposedly the first and only time this technique was used of combining a human howl with a wolf howl. And a lot of movies where wolves show up, the sound that they use for wolves isn't like actual wolf sounds because wolves are dogs, so they would sound like right. dogs instead. They they use I think like panthers or or like mountain lion is a common yes like sound that they or make. or in the case of Silver Bullet dinosaurs. Yeah. There is some point when he roars, and I'm like I'm pretty sure that sounds like something they used in Jurassic Park. <laughs> So don't worry, Jack Pierce fans. He does get to use the makeup when he does his second werewolf film, The Wolfman, in 1941, which is another Universal Pictures film, and it is really where all of the werewolf stuff that we know about in Hollywood comes from. 
And uh, what's interesting about this film is that it has a really great poem that is used throughout the 40s and 50s, and even into as recent as 2004 in Van Helsing, this poem was used. And for a long time, it was thought to be like an ancient poem by Hungarians or something, but it was actually written by the guy that wrote the screenplay for The Wolfman. And it goes... Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. And that is the first explicit instance of linking moonlight and specifically like the amount of moonlight that affects werewolf transformations and also the plant wolfbane. So yeah, I was about to ask, in the follow-up sequel movies to The Wolfman, that's when they changed the poem from Autumn Moon to And the Full Moon is Bright. Yes. So uh, that actually takes place in the film that follows The Wolfman, which is Frankenstein meets The Wolfman. And the line is changed from When the Autumn Moon is Bright to When the Moon is Full and Bright. And from then on, it is specifically linked to full moons and phases. But it's interesting that that is used not only in like almost every subsequent wolf movie after that uh, through the 40s and 50s, but also in the 60s and 70s, it was used in an episode of Dark Shadow. She's done an episode of Boy Meets World where Corey thinks he's a werewolf. Yes, that too. And it's used as recently in 2004 in the movie Van Helsing, so it gets a lot of usage. So the makeup, Jack Pierce again, and he got to use his original design that he was trying to use in 1935, only he really got to use it now, and it's probably the most iconic iteration of the Wolfman because it's just a a bunch of yak hair glued to his face along with some prosthetic nose and stuff like that. And it's also the first time you really get to see the person transform on film, even though the transformation is very basic and it's just like sitting in a chair and it's layers of film on top of layers of film where the hair slowly starts to fill in. Um, And also in the 1941 Wolfman is where they first incorporate silver as a defense mechanism against werewolves. And it's not a silver bullet. It is the silver head of a cane that the character actually purchases at the beginning of the film. And that's used to kill the Wolfman. In Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, he is resurrected by moonlight because they go into his tomb to rob some treasures and the full moonlight is shown onto his body and that is what resurrects him. So very interesting concept of furthering the idea that moonlight gives werewolves power. That was always one of my favorite things about Lon Chaney Jr.'s run on the Wolfman was how tortured he seemed being was sort of like effectively immortal but he hated it and he like i think he even mentions in one of the later movies trying to commit suicide several times and it doesn't take which one Mm -hmm. was that um i'm not sure was it it wasn't abbott and costello meets the wolfman was it because i feel that's a very dark it could have been (laughs) for a wacky comedy you know it very well could have been because surprisingly you wouldn't think those movies would be in canon but technically they are considered in canon even at universal uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is also the first time that Bella Lugosi plays Frankenstein's monster, which was originally supposed to happen when they cast, you know, Frankenstein in 1931. But Bella Lugosi didn't feel like it because he read an early draft of the script, which was just a maniacal monster going around killing people. Then they changed the script and directors to James Whale, made it more sympathetic, and then hired then unknown actor, at least in America, Boris Karloff to play him. Uh, playing Frankenstein is just all makeup and grunting. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Essentially, the 50s, 60s, and 70s are a time of B-movie werewolves and, and weird foreign films. The most notable examples of which are The Werewolf from 1956, which involves a man who is injected with irradiated wolf's blood, which causes him to transform into a werewolf. And then there's an Italian film, which I love, (laughs) because the American title is Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory from 1961. (laughs) They just get more degraded from then on until the 80s, almost exactly 40 years after the original Wolfman is when we get the first uh, werewolf renaissance. Three particularly influential werewolf horror movies are The Howling, um, An American Werewolf in London, and Wolfen. And then after that, you just get a whole bunch of werewolf movies. Like, there's a whole bunch of Howling sequels. They're still making Howling sequels as early as 2011. Oh, wow. There's Teen Wolf. There's Silver Bullet. And then they kind of fade out again in the 90s to not very often. And if they are, they're kind of B-movies or direct-to-DVD movies or something like that. 
And then you get the second renaissance, that's what I call it, which is in the year 2000, and that's when Ginger Snaps comes out. Then you've got Dog Soldiers in 2002, Underworld, and Cursed, and Twilight, and you get the Wolfman remake in 2010, and finally Late Phases in 2014. Silver Bullet very clearly sits into that realm of 80s werewolf movies where there's some trying to combine elements of horror and also some campy silliness a little bit. And Late Phases, obviously, is fitting into the more recent trend of werewolf films, which is to make them kind of scary and grotesque, but also add sympathetic elements, I guess, to them. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about with Silver Bullet is the the narrative structure of Silver Bullet in particular is sort of weird. I want to go on the record as saying, I love this movie. It is a lot of fun, mostly because Gary Busey. <laughs> the movie itself starts with narration from a narrator who is revealed to be the main character's sister, Jane. The reason I say the main character's sister is because the movie is narrated by Jane, and she is the first character that we actually get introduced to. However, it's not long. Later, after they get into an argument and the, they show that the parents are, are not as strict on Marty as they should be, they tend to be pretty forgiving with him, then Marty comes into Jane's room and offers to pay her for the pantyhose. She takes the money that would be the cost of the pantyhose, And then the narrative detaches to her for another hour after that. It's kind of crazy. Like, (laughs) she is the first person introduced, but then she kind of disappears from the movie almost entirely for a while. I I forgot about that. It it, it wasn't until, like, later in the movie when she started narrating again. I was like, oh, God, this is a narrated movie. How long have we been without a narrator? It's another hour. And then suddenly she starts narrating again, and the narrative shifts back to Jane very briefly. The movie is sort of Marty going through his shenanigans, dealing with the werewolf, dealing with being in a wheelchair and the way people will interact with him. And then once they sort of discover the werewolf and they're trying to figure out who in the town it might be, the narrative shifts back to Jane briefly because she starts narrating. And then it follows her searching the town looking for who might be the werewolf. After they send the first note to the pastor, the narrative shifts back to Marty again, and then it stays with Marty until the very end of the movie, and then there's this weird moment at the very end. They've defeated the werewolf, they're huddled against the wall, they're hugging, you know, it's been a nice, you know, emotional arc where their relationship is rocky at the beginning, and then by the end of the movie, they're, you know, they're embracing because they've gone through this ordeal and they're closer than they've ever been, and Marty says, I love you, Jane, and Jane says, I love you too, Marty, and then... The narrator comes in again and says, I wasn't always able to say it, but I can say it now. I love you too, Marty. Good night. And why? You did just say it. Your character just said those words. We didn't need you to reiterate. Also, I loved him. Peace. She just wanted to make sure you knew she loved him, even though he was paraplegic, and that was a huge burden on her. Because through the whole movie, she was like, well, I gotta take care of Marty. <laughs> So I know that you wanted to talk about the differences between the movie and the book, and I would really like to hear the differences. I do own the book, but I haven't read it, or I haven't read it in a while. Uh, But I did pull the book down because I was curious to see if that last line was from the book, but it's not. Jane isn't his sister in the book. Her name's Katie, if I read that right. She's not in the final confrontation with the werewolf. It's just Marty and his uncle, who is not named Red. He's named Al. Yeah, Uncle Al. The whole final (laughs) confrontation is really short. It's very quick compared to the movie. That's the only thing that I saw. But I was very confused because it doesn't end like that. So the last line of the movie almost feels like in an earlier draft of the script or something, Marty was supposed to die or something? Because otherwise, I don't know why it's there. It, it doesn't establish anything else except remind us this movie was narrated unnecessarily twice. So most of the comparisons that I did between the book and the movie have to do with the Reverend, because that was the character I was most confused by. So I don't know a lot of the key story differences, but I do know how the Reverend is kind of portrayed in the book versus the movie, and they're very different. So there are sections, if I correct, uh, in the novella that are told from the point of view of the priest. So they say he is a Baptist minister. 
in the book, but in the movie, they don't specify, as far as I know, a uh, sect of Christianity. And he wears a Nehru collar, which is something that Baptists do not do. That's Catholic, So he right? has to be like, yeah. He, well, I mean, it happens in a few liturgical churches, like Lutheran, mainly Catholic, but also Episcopal and yeah, stuff like Yeah, Episcopal, that. Lutheran, the ones that are basically like Catholic light. And also, it says that it takes place in Maine, which is where most of his stories take place, but in the movie, there are so many characters, including Gary Busey, that have Southern accents. They do, even. <laughs> that makes no sense. Which, Gary Busey makes sense because he is from Texas, but there are several other people that have Southern accents, like townspeople and all this other stuff, and I was like, this is Maine. The Reverend's speeches that he gives, he's like, we are lost in the light. Yeah. And in the, the Oh, yeah. The he has that weird Southern light accent, like Scarlett O'Hara. He has that, uh, preacher accent it's really only uh-huh. done with preachers like and now say amen and we will all come together <laughs> but anyway in the movie they don't specify his origin how he became a werewolf they don't really tell a lot of things from his point of view they don't really make him super sympathetic the first time you see him is when he, he's speaking in front of the town and in, in that fourth of july festival thing then the next time you see him is speaking at that kid's funeral he uh <laughs> is sort of sympathetic in that role because he's trying to figure out some way to console the town and then it morphs into that really cool dream sequence where like everybody in the church transforms into werewolves which is honestly my favorite part of the whole movie just because I think the transformations were done they were pretty good they were so good and like it was kind of creepy Uh, not like scary because it was, but just it kind was of slow like, like the they yeah. show the town and everyone's sort of given him that death glare and like sort of panting like dogs at him but it was also i love this movie because it's so absurd and it's like absurd in that stephen king way that's still creepy but also you can <laughs> tell he has fun with this stuff like the town transforms into werewolves and starts attacking the reverend but the piano player is still playing the piano, but she's just sort of like smashing her hands on the keys, making this like bong, 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 Yeah, that was a pretty fantastic part. But yeah, that's like his most sympathetic moment. And then after that, he kind of goes full into, well, I'm a werewolf now, and so I'm going to be menacing preacher when I'm human and evil werewolf. And there's a moment where he tries to justify his kills, but it doesn't really work that well. He only Um, justifies one. Yeah, exactly. Playing off of what he does in the book. So in the book, they do explain kind of his origin as a werewolf. It's very ambiguous, which I like because it plays on some tropes from early Hollywood werewolf stories, but also some ancient werewolf stories. Basically, it says that he's in the cemetery one day, and it's a nice spring day, and he picks some flowers that he thinks are really particularly beautiful, and before he can even get them back to his place to put them in water, they die. And they don't just, like, die, like, wilt a little bit, they, like, turn black, like they've been burned. And it's only after then that he starts having the weird werewolf dreams and having unexplained, like, cuts and bruises on his body, and he starts hearing about people getting killed. He doesn't know, you know, like, if it's him, because he's, like, got big chunks of memory where he doesn't remember things. The assumption is that the flowers are wolfbane, and that picking them some kind, somehow kind of cursed him into being a werewolf. But then, after that, he, you know, like, starts killing people, and there's kind of more of a justification in the books, uh, sort of. Uh, because, like, the first victim is the guy on the railroad tracks, and I think he's also a drunk like he is in the movie, so he kills a drunk. The second victim, which is the pregnant girl in the movie, I guess makes more sense because he's killing her, she had a baby out of wedlock, and she was going to commit suicide, whatever. Saving her immortal soul. In the book, she is just this weird, dewy-eyed person that still lives with her mom, and she's looking for love, and I guess you could label her as promiscuous, possibly, which could be a justification, but not a great one. She she thinks it's a dream because she sees the werewolf outside and she's like, oh, I'm having a dream. So she like invites him in and she thinks it's some kind of weird erotic animal dream, I guess. And then he <laughs> We've kills all had her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there's Grady Brady, who is uh, <laughs> staying, <laughs> staying out. <laughs> Great he's staying out after curfew flying his kite and he gets mesmerized by the kite and he's so he's technically if you're gonna follow that track of thought he's staying out past curfew and disobeying his parents so he's gonna go too 
In the book, there's more of a theme of this theme, like the victims supposedly deserve what they're getting, you know, like it's the righteous werewolf preacher picking off the sinners or something. But it's still not super concrete. Uh, it's even less concrete in the movie, I think. He's more sympathetic in the novella. And then in the movie, he's just like, oh, no, I did a thing. Well, I guess I'll go do all the things now. So there are a couple of moments early in the movie where he is sympathetic. The funeral for Brady, his delivery seems to be actually sympathetic. And then later, before the townsfolk get their pitchforks and, and, and torches and try to have like a mob go kill something, the reverend shows up and is begging them to stop. Like he's yeah. He's trying very hard to make them not go. And like, there's also a weird moment where the sheriff is like weirdly hostile to mm-hmm. the reverend. He, he goes to the sheriff, he's like, Sheriff, you gotta help me stop them! And then the sheriff is like, come on, this is that community spirit you've been talking about, right, Reverend? And I was like, this is the Reverend? Like, what did he do to piss you off? He's, he's trying to stop them. It's also a weird moment for the Reverend, because he's trying to stop all these people from doing that stuff, and then he transforms into a werewolf, and then kills them all. Like, well, I guess I'll go, go kill them all, since I couldn't stop them. At least in the first half of the movie, I took him to be... Because he... Right after that, right, the, everyone goes out to the woods, and then a lot of them right. die because they're idiots. And the next scene is the dream sequence you talked about, where it starts out like a normal scene where the Reverend is at the funeral for several of the people who died on the oh, hunt. Oh, yeah, and it's then, not Grady Brady's funeral. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's I the town's and then he's like eulogizing them and then the whole town turns into werewolves and attacks him and he wakes up and he says let it end dear god let it end and so like that all feels very sympathetic up to that point and then once marty figures out that the reverend is the werewolf suddenly he becomes this looming gaunt pastor yeah. which i mean i guess makes sense because his secret has been found out because marty does send him the world's first youtube comment which is i know who you are i know what you are kill yourself which <laughs> <laughs> That is such an extreme statement. I'm it just is. saying. And from, like, some, from a kid who is portrayed as such a wide-eyed goody-goody, mm-hmm. he always like has this degree of separation from anything bad that happens. Like Brady's a little prick who acts like an asshole and like throws a snake at Jane. Marty is like, "Hey, that's funny." And then Grady just keeps Brady, whatever. <laughs> just keeps going with it. And then Marty's like, "I didn't know Jane. I didn't know he's too mean." And so like Marty is this wide-eyed goody-goody and then he's like, "Kill yourself." Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. In this Jeez. universe, it makes sense because it's the same thing the preacher does because he's like, oh, I kind of want to fight it. Oh, I've found out. Well, I'm going to kill him now. <laughs> we'll have to give this movie a little more credit than we're giving it in that, for example, the pastor is portrayed relatively sympathetic up until Marty sends him a note telling him to kill himself. And then the pastor sort of understandably becomes more unraveled because he has been trying to keep this thing a secret. They don't say how he became a werewolf in the movie, but they do sort of address that in that Marty says maybe he doesn't know either, which also leaves another confusing timeline thing because it feels like the pastor has been a part of this town for a while and the werewolf attacks only recently happened. Arnie the drunk is like the first person to die, but it doesn't seem like the pastor is like new in town. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I missed that line of dialogue. Maybe they said that when they introduced him, but it seemed like he'd been there for a while. That's the impression I got. Like he was the town preacher. Like he had been there for a while. I noticed that in Silver Bullet, there's two key sequences that happen that involve bridges. So I started looking up the symbolism for bridges, just, just out of curiosity. Bridges tend to symbolize stability, they symbolize connections, and most relevant to the movie, they symbolize progress or transitions. The first time that Marty encounters the werewolf, it's on a bridge at night when he's shooting off fireworks that his Uncle Red gave him. For me, this scene is sort of the last time that Marty gets to be like a full child. Because up until this point, he's been a good kid that occasionally gets into very mild trouble. He's very, very mildly rebellious. This is his biggest moment of rebellion in the entire movie is that he sneaks out and he goes to shoot off fireworks. But after this, he's more grown up. It's like he identified the issue and then he suddenly becomes proactive. He goes from being reactive and being afraid and hearing all these stories to being proactive. Because once he sees that creature, he immediately starts trying to loop in Jane and his uncle into figuring out who this werewolf is and how they can stop him. The next time that he encounters the werewolf... He is also on a bridge. First, he's on a road, and he's driving his awesome rocket-powered wheelchair that his uncle made him. And then the pastor shows up, or I'm sorry, the reverend shows up, driving his car and tries to run him off the road. 
Marty winds up crashing into this abandoned bridge and goes into this like sort of covered abandoned bridge. And the the Reverend comes in and is going to try to kill him, but then um, Marty sees someone and starts shouting, and then the Reverend runs and hides. But for me, this was also like a moment of transition, because the change this time is the pastor. The first bridge is really neat, it's very nice, it's over a nice river. It's sort of the last hurrah of Marty being a kid. This bridge is dilapidated, it's old, it's worn down, and it sort of reflects the pastor, the reverend's frazzled state. Physically, he's got five o'clock shadow, his hair is a mess, he, he has an eye patch because he got shot in the eye with a firework when he was a werewolf, so he's sort of becoming physically degraded and physically is starting to match his emotional state. And this is sort of a transition for him as well, because this is the moment when his wolfiness sort of takes over more completely. Like before, he had been relatively contained. He had these bursts of animal attacks, but this is the moment when even in his human form, he becomes sinister and, and intimidating and more evil. I did write down the differences between the werewolves between the two movies, and they're very interesting. Like, some of the things they treat the same, and other things they treat almost exactly the opposite. Like, in Silver Bullet, the werewolf does not heal. Anything that happens to him in werewolf form stays with him in human form, although if he had been shot in the eye with a firework as a human, he probably might have died. The scars and stuff that he gets while he's a werewolf still show up when he is a human. And that is not what happens in late phases. Anytime they hurt themselves, they have, like, superhuman abilities to heal all those wounds. That's up. true, I didn't think about so, that. So, and that's an interesting thing between different variations of werewolf tales, is sometimes they can be hurt by man-made objects, like any man-made object, and sometimes all of their superhuman abilities that they have while they're werewolves transfer to their human forms as well. Both of them are religious figures, which has some kind of commentary to make about religion, like the corrupting of religious figures and how it can happen literally to anybody. You know, it doesn't matter your status or your beliefs or whatever, I guess. Well, sure, and it almost seems like these figures are using their religious station or their proximity to the church to sort of hide in plain sight. Like, no one will suspect yeah. old Reverend Lowe. He's a local town reverend. He He's a good guy. And then... The same thing with the old <laughs> James Griffin, definitely using yeah. his proximity to the church to sort of throw the scent off of the fact that he, you know, was a werewolf. Right. Um, let's see. The next part was the kills, and which we'd kind of already talked about, but the kills in Silver Bullet seem to kind of, he's kind of like justifies them. He tries. They're more justifiable in the book, but he does try to at least justify them in Silver Bullet, the movie. Um, meanwhile, the kills in late phases, I don't think he ever tries to justify them. He just does them like they're just random kills, it seems like. Yeah, I think that he even says that he specifically kills them because he doesn't want to curse them with being a werewolf. Because whenever he's about to kill Father Smith, he says, I'll kill you out of love because I don't want you to be end up like this. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. he did mention that. Like, it's, there's not a choice in who he's killing, but the decision to kill is his decision because it's more merciful than just leaving them you know, injured, and then they heal, and then they're also a werewolf. I mean, until he stops so, doing that and <laughs> recruits an army. When they die, uh, both of the werewolves turn back into their human form, with all of their scars and everything, which is interesting, considering that their transformations are vastly different. The transformation in Silver Bullet you don't really get to see, but you do see the transformation back to human at the end, and it's like a very physical transformation, you know, kind of like you see in most werewolf movies. But the transformation in late phases is particularly unique, and is not used very often because they literally rip their human skin off and kind of like shred it everywhere. In essence, shedding their human form, turning into a werewolf, and then somehow, I guess, regrow it back. Or, I don't know, they don't really explain how they transition back into human in late phases. They just kind of find dead humans that are completely naked. So either the skin regrows around them or maybe they shed off their werewolfness. I don't know. And then the last one was the origin um, in Silver Bullet. It is not at all explained. It is completely open. Um, they don't mention it in the movie, how he becomes a werewolf. They do kind of mention it in the book. They allude to the flower picking expedition that he did in the cemetery. However, in late phases, they, that guy who is the main werewolf, I don't remember his name, Deacon Guy is all I can remember. 
You know, obviously they establish in the movie that there's been a history of animal attacks among residents. And so he specifically wanted to go out and find what was attacking all these people and kill it. And he does. But when he does so, he gets bitten. So he becomes the new monster. So in essence, the killings just keep right on going. But his, you know, he kind of justifies why he kills people instead of wounding them. But you do kind of, you know, get to know his backstory, although you don't know why the werewolf would be in their community to begin with, other than the fact that <laughs> you just kind of assume that werewolf thing keeps getting passed down from old people to old people the more they move in there, so. <laughs> I kind of got the vibe that the werewolf this time came from the woods, because it's the whole point with that the, com- the retirement community was located at the edge of woods. It turns out that this werewolf lives among them because he's the guy who uh, works at the church. But he said that he goes into the woods to hunt it. So I assumed that the other werewolf came from the woods. Which is an interesting thing that I noticed happens a lot with um, werewolf movies like this. There's a common trope of the initial werewolf that bites the character that becomes the werewolf for the movie always seems more wolfy. Like, uh, in, in yes. The Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. is bitten by, like, a wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, in American Werewolf in London, the main character and his friend, they're attacked by a big wolf, but it looks more wolfen. It looks more like a big wolf. Um, and then, this is a weird example to pull out, but there was a show I used to watch whenever I was in, like, middle school, around, like, 10, 11, 12, called Big Wolf on Campus. Yep, I remember that. That was on ABC Family, wasn't it? Uh, Fox Family. Or Fox yeah, Family, yeah, that's Fox right. Family. Um, but the same thing, like in the first episode, he gets bitten by a wolf and then he becomes sort of a wolf man, like pointy ears, shaggier hair, pointy teeth, but like still maintains sort of a humanoid form. So it's always interesting how it almost seems like the, this like more wild, older force winds up infecting humans. And so the, the result is sort of like a weird blend. Yes, and uh, the only thing that I could find, I was trying to figure out why these authors of these screenplays would include this um, religious figures as werewolves. And the earliest thing that I could find, at least as far as like the Christian theology goes, is St. Christopher. He's the patron saint of travelers. And back in ye olden days, this seems to go back to ancient Egypt. They were trying to find ways, kind of like they did, I guess, with the pagans, like with Easter and things like that, you know, kind of incorporating the bunny and things like that into, you know, Christianity to try and convert pagans. So it was kind of the same thing with ancient Egyptians. So they had, you know, Anubis, the god with a dog head. And so in a lot of the early illustrations of St. Christopher, he is drawn with a dog's head. And there's actually like legends of him being a dog man until he meets Christ and then he sheds his dog form and becomes St. Christopher. You know? Interesting. Um, yeah, it's very interesting how it's, it's always an analogy of people are primal and animalistic until they're introduced to Christ and Christianity and his message and, and then they're transformed and made more human. In, in that article, there was a few pictures, old pictures of St. Christopher drawn with a dog's head or wolf's head and it is hilarious. But that was the earliest um, and kind of only connection I could find between Christianity, the church, and werewolf lore. That's interesting. I know that um, I've read a couple books on werewolf history. Two different common things that I read was one of the common sort of myths about werewolf transformations involved. Werewolves were like, they looked like people, but they could take off their human skin like a suit and then leave it somewhere. And then they would run around as a wolf. And then whenever they would transform back, they would go find their human skin and sort of put it back on like a costume. The other one that I saw was sort of the opposite. It was like uh, you got like a, a wolf skin or like a wolf pelt belt that you would put on and it would transform you into a wolf. There was also, if I remember correctly, and I, I'm, I'm half remembering this because it's been a while since I've read it, but there was one book I read that there was a group of people that believed that they were sort of like God's warriors and werewolves. Like they believed that God made them werewolves. They were considered blasphemers and the church. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I do remember reading something about that in my research. It was interesting to compare like the wide array of what is considered a transformation into a werewolf. 
So obviously in our two movies that we watched, one, you literally like shred your skin off and the other one, like you physically transform. And the most basic form of transformation that I could find was, I think it's similar to that one that you're talking about, where they were like warriors for the church, where to transform into their werewolf form, they like put on these belts (laughs) made of like wolf hide. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if they're made of wolf hide. I just remember them being like belts. They put on the belts, and then they're werewolves. And I was like, hmm, well, that is certainly something. Doesn't make for a good scare. It's not as not as visually interesting. You mentioned earlier that uh, werewolf taking their skin off isn't a common transformation, and I think that generally you're right. Uh, we see the physically transforming into a werewolf thing more often, but... There are a couple of examples that come to mind. One is a wolf movie that came out Mm -hmm. also relatively recently called Wolf Cop. If I remember correctly, in that one, it's sort of played almost like a joke where whenever he transforms, he pulls his human skin off and then leaves (laughs) it in like a gross bloody pile behind. And then he physically transforms back to a human later. So he just keeps leaving behind piles (laughs) of like gross pulpy human skin. And then Twilight does that. Whenever the shapeshifters transform, they jump through there and you can actually see, it's not like bloody or particularly graphic, but you see their human skin sort of crumple off and fly off like trash or like fabric. So it's, it's even in Twilight, this idea of like shedding your human form to reveal the sort of beast <laughs> within. You can tell how much I paid attention to those movies because I don't remember that at all. <laughs> Silver Bullet has heavy themes of addiction and substance abuse. And Stephen King is a recovering substance abuser. He, he started out as an alcoholic and then eventually he shifted toward drug addiction. And so a lot of his works up until about the 90s deal really heavily with addiction. You can see it in The Shining, in uh, Salem's Lot, in Silver Bullet, just about everywhere in his early works. And then by the 90s, whenever he gets hit by a van and nearly died, and then he had this really painful physical recovery. And then a lot of his books since then have been dealing with chronic pain, hospitalization, traumas like that. This movie came out in 1985, which means it was written probably somewhere in like 83, and um, he was in his heyday at the time. He, I read a couple of articles, interviews with him. Uh, there's a quote from On Writing where he said, Tabby began by dumping a trash bag full of stuff from my office out on the rug. Beer cans, cigarette butts, cocaine in gram bottles, and cocaine in plastic baggies. Coke spoons caked with snot and blood, Valium, Xanax, bottles of Robitussin cough syrup, and NyQuil cold medicine, even bottles of mouthwash. He was so bad at one point, he doesn't remember writing Cujo. He has vague memories of writing it, but he said that he was pretty sure he wrote it in like a week in a coke-fueled frenzy. A couple examples of how addiction and substance abuse is portrayed in Silver Bullet. Arnie, the first kill, is the town drunk. This portrayal is more like humorous. It's more, it's more pitiful. He's sort of this loner guy that no one seems to care about, driving along, and he's literally <laughs> singing his favorite beer jingle. The Rheingold beer jingle, which I did not think was real. I remember hearing it in an episode of The Golden Girls, but I didn't think that was real until I heard it in here, and I was like, either that's a real ad, or both Silver Bullet and The Golden Girls both take place in the same universe. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, no one no one even questions that he died. They're just like, oh, he was the town drunk. He kind of deserved it. Must have fallen on the tracks and been decapitated. Oops. And then Tammy's dad. Tammy is a character that I don't know if we've even really mentioned, but she is a friend of Marty's from school. She's really only there to be introduced. And then her dad died. Uh, oh, but yes. he's this loud, yes. it's implied he's abusive, creep guy. At one point, he sees Marty, and he says something to the effect of, like, damn cripples should be killed off and balance the budget. So he's a monster. And uh, he's also very clearly addicted to cough syrup. And this is, again, a non-sympathetic depiction. The first one is more pitiful, but this one and this one is more like the violent aspect of substance abuse. And there's one more Uncle Red, Gary Busey's character. He is clearly an alcoholic. His is more sympathetic because, one, Gary Busey is just endlessly charismatic, and so you can't help but like him because he's just so cool. But he also, he's the only person who treats Marty like a real person. He's the one that's constantly in Marty's corner. He's also the one who's kind of a bad influence, though, and uh, he drinks around him, gets drunk around him, swears a lot. He gives Marty fireworks and convinces him to sneak out, which is dangerous. He builds this incredibly dangerous wheelchair that is also, it's just a motorcycle. Um, there's one moment where Red is clearly a functioning alcoholic, because there's a moment at Brady's funeral, and Red starts to pull out a flask, and he starts to drink, and then he stops himself, and he puts it away. 
Red clearly has problems, but it's almost like it implies there's hope for him. He He's still clearly an alcoholic, and he's still clearly addicted to this substance, but it's more you feel bad for him because he's such a nice guy. He is definitely the most sympathetic addicted character in the whole movie. And he's Gary Busey, so he's just, you know, cool. It's not the same, but Late Phases deals with trauma. Father Smith talks to Ambrose at one point, and he talks about how he became a priest. And he says that he was a bad person. He said that he he was a mean kid, and eventually you get to the point where high school is over, and you gotta pick a trade of some kind, and you can go to trade school, or you can go to the army, or you can go to the seminary. And so he went into the seminary. Ambrose says, so you killed the bad part of yourself. And he says, no, I caged it, I starved it, I whittled it down to half a pack a day. The only remnants left of his old personality is uh, sort of a world weariness and the fact that he smokes. Whereas Ambrose almost feels like the inverse of that. Because he said he went to Vietnam thinking that he was going to be doing some good and saving lives. And what he got over to was a shit show. So it implies that at some point he was a nice guy who was apparently more open and more loving, but when he went over there, the things he saw were so traumatic for him, and he specifically mentions having to kill a child. Yeah. He mentions that there was a kid that an enemy troop like strapped a grenade to and then sent the kid walking toward them, and the only thing to do was kill the kid so the grenade didn't go off and kill all of them, or let the grenade go off and kill all of them. So he took the shot and killed the kid, and it fucked him up. And one, it made him bitter, and that caused him issues with the rest of his family. I guess he and his wife stayed together, but it wasn't like a happy marriage and he didn't have a good relationship with his son. And whenever he's sent to Crescent Bay, it's almost like he's already given up on life and determined to die anyway. He says, people don't come here to live, they come here to die. The werewolf attack is almost an excuse to die, just because he seems to hate himself and feels like he is flawed. And the priest asks him, so do you think that killed your good side? So it's like the priest killed off his bad side by going into the seminary and trying to make amends for the bad stuff he had done as a kid, as a youth. Ambrose went off to war expecting to do good, and he came back damaged, and any hope and any innocence that he had has been killed off. And now he's just this bitter husk of a man who just kind of alienates everyone that he comes across. There are neighbors that show up whenever he first moves in, and he immediately brushes them (laughs) off. The only person he seems to have any sort of even halfway good relationship with is his neighbor Dolores. He's not super nice to her, but she's not condescending to him the way that the other neighbors are. And so he is at least respectful to her. And then she immediately dies and he doesn't give a fuck about anyone else except the priest. They kind of seem to get each other. Yeah, I wrote down in my notes that it seemed like Late Phases was a mix of Silver Bullet and John Wick. Yeah. Because his friend neighbor dies and then his dog dies. And he's like, well, I'm going to kill this son of a bitch now because my dog is dead. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't know. I just found those two themes sort of interesting. They're not exactly the same because, um, I mean, obviously addiction is not the same thing as PTSD, although PTSD can lead to addiction. It can also not. Yes. I mean, it, mental illnesses. It very often does. So um, it's just interesting that Ambrose has this darkness that he carries with him and it affects his relationships with everyone else much the same way that all of the addicts in Silver Bullet are alienated from everyone else. Gary Busey's character, Uncle Red, does not have a good relationship with his sister. He has a good relationship with Marty because Marty's kind of young enough not to see the problems. And when someone points them out to him, his sister at one point says that he's a drunk and he's getting divorced again. And Marty reacts pissed off and defensive because he loves his his Uncle Red. But he also realizes Red has issues. Yeah, and he kind of like, at at the beginning, he's very defensive of his uncle's issues. But then the further it goes along, the more he kind of recognizes them and acknowledges them. Red was clearly the favorite relative. (laughs) Yes, as he should be, because everybody else was just kind of in existence. That's true. And Red was like, I'm awesome. That's true. Everyone else is kind of there. Gary Busey's the (laughs) only one who brought... (laughs) Gary Busey brought his Buseyness and made him feel like a real person. Which is something, apparently, on set that Stephen King encouraged, because Gary Busey ad-libbed a lot of his own stuff into the character, and Stephen King loved it, because he felt like it made the character more sincere and likable. Yeah, Gary Busey's a good actor. I mean, he did play Buddy Holly. He did. Impressively well. I have seen that movie. And, like, the only thing that you can tell it's Gary Busey from watching the Buddy Holly story is his teeth. Yeah. Like, when he smiles, you're like, oh, yeah, that's Gary Busey. That's a Busey. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, he looks exactly like Buddy Holly. Okay, I think that just about does it. Uh, thank you very much for being here today, Brandon. Yes, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about horror and stuff.
You can follow us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com. Visit us on the web at eerieearfuls.wordpress.com. That's eerieearfuls, all one word, .wordpress.com. You can subscribe to us on CastBox and iTunes. Give us a review. It helps other people find the show and lets us know how we're doing. Our theme music is Bobby Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also by Kevin McLeod. Find more music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. Silver Bullet is a 1985 film Let's, directed by on. Daniel Atias. Start over. You sound so irritated. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was trying to do an announcer voice. I didn't mean to sound pissed off. <laughs> you sound so irritated. <laughs> you sound like... Silver Bullet is a movie that exists. The 1985 shit fest directed by <laughs> Daniel Atias and written by Stephen King. Blah, blah. Poop.